Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things science. My name's Stu, and on this week's show, we're going to be talking tech. What do you guys think of tech? Tales from tech. Um, yeah, look, tech Tech is good. Tech is bad. Tech is sometimes in the middle. You know, it's it's all of the things. Yeah. Are, you trying to, are you trying to hedge there because you may be a bit uh, anti-tech in this particular... Yeah, look, my story this week is about um, is about the tech in the form of um, drones, um, in particular um, the drones, the sort of, um, you know, the, the drones when you, that you see when you are on holidays and someone wants to get, you know, the perfect Instagram snap um, and so they put, they get out their drone and they fly it around your head. They la- launch a little quadcopter into the yeah. space around your face. Yeah, mm. they launch a quadcopter into the into space, your face space around your face. Yeah, um, I, I, I've got to say, Claire, I don't really enjoy that myself. No, and neither do I. So I'm going to have a look at um, how, te- how these drones are affecting wildlife. Right. Um, and, you know, whether they're causing any issues um, for the good, for good and for bad. And Chris, yeah. how about you? What's your, what's your tech angle this week? I am so inspired by Claire's whinge against technology. <laughs> so I'm going to do the same. Um, except I'm going to talk about uh, some of the disruptive industries that have arisen in recent years. In particular, yeah, so-called ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. Uh, there's been a recent study to look at the impact that they have on city traffic, in particular the city of San Francisco. And... It's not looking so good for our ride-sharing companies. You know, they could have made things better, but they don't seem to be making things better. Well, you know, I'm of the opinion that technology is neither good nor bad. It's how it's used that's the important thing. Oh, right, oh, Stu. Yeah. Okay. You know, what, I mean, are you no, saying look, this isn't just 10 minutes of you whinging about no, Well, no, it's not 10 minutes of me whinging. It's 10 minutes of me telling that you can actually use your downtime instead of playing pointless games on your phone while you're waiting for the train you can actually contribute to science while you're standing there twiddling your time away on your phone so the gamifying of science is what i'm going to be talking about which is a pretty positive advance in tech i think so stay tuned for that I saw a film last week. It was about an Icelandic woman and she was waging war with the government about their inaction on climate change. Um, just F- FYI, everyone. Oh, I've heard of that movie. I can't remember what it's called. I, th- I think it's called Woman at War. Any- okay, anyway, yep. this isn't a film review as much as I would like it to be. But, you know, the, the film was okay. If you get a chance to see it, great. But one scene really stuck out. It was when a drone, like an unmanned aerial vehicle, were- word passed her capturing her face and then sort of like hung in the air like with its weird buzziness. In response to this, she um, shot the drone down with a bow and arrow, bringing it to the ground, and then she ended its electronic life with a swift brick to the circuitry. Um, anyway, at that moment, I laughed and I cheered. Um, and thinking about why I did that, um, it, it made me realise how... Um, <laughs> 
how you don't how like I drones. feel about yeah. drones right now. Um, did you stand up and cheer when she did that? Well, I did a couple of fist bumps in fist pumps um, in my seat. I didn't exactly <laughs> stand up. I'm not that um, socially. Uh, Blind that okay. you know, I'd stand up in a movie, but anyway, no, you're just going to broadcast your um, prejudices over the radio for everyone else to hear. That is what I do, yeah, <laughs> on a science show that's not about you know, judgment and prejudices at all. And anyway, anyway, so look, like analyzing this, where it comes from, um, I think it is on the on the for the past couple of years, every time I go on holiday or I travel somewhere, I find myself more often than not sharing these incredible, beautiful, natural places, um, with someone's crappy camera drone. I don't yep. know if this has happened to you recently. You're on the beach or you're in a national park. I, I have a quick question, first of all. Um, Stu, do you own a drone? I do not. Good. Neither do I. So I'll just make sure that we weren't offending <laughs> I, I do, one of us. I do have a. I do have a remote-controlled <laughs> helicopter, which is not a drone. How, how is that? Does it have a camera on it? It has a camera on it, but it's... Oh! But it's only it's Dude. only got a single rotor. It's not a drone. Oh, goodness. Yeah. All right. Well, Stu, it turns out, is one of these annoying, obnoxious I've, people. I've only ever flown it once. Okay. Look, I'm 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 calling them the jet skis of the sky. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Yeah, because um, I'm sure they're really fun for the people who are behind the controls. Yeah. But for everybody else, it's really frustrating. Um, and it got me thinking about um, what wildlife think of drones. Um, and maybe not what they fit, think so much as how they behave and yeah. what their reaction is and if it causes them stress. I think most of them just go, huh? What's that? Well, That's what they I think. Mean, yeah, maybe, <laughs> but maybe you don't know also. Um, I mean, on one hand, uh, these drones have a huge potential to be able to access hard-to-reach places, allow scientists to track and measure difficult-to-access populations. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, if these animals find the drones as annoying as... I don't know, say I do, um, maybe there is a danger there. Um, anyway. Well, but I mean, you know, there, I've, I've seen there are a number of locations and increasingly uh, where there's signs saying no drones. So I went down to um, the 12 Apostles recently and there's signs everywhere saying no drones. You can't, <laughs> you can't fly your drones around the 12 Apostles. Yeah, right. So, you know, people are starting to go, well, it's actually ruining it for everyone else. So, right, yeah, yeah. well... There you go. Um, I will get to that and where you, and where you can find more information about that in a sec. But I do want to tell you about this 2015 <clears throat> study, which was the first ever study to test wild animals' physiological reactions to drones. So the scientists, they flew a platter-sized quadcopter um, near some wild bears. And well, they that's did a quadcopter, this... not a unicopter. It was not a unicopter. Yeah, not a unicopter. Quad- no one's complaining about unicopters. <laughs> Anyway, they flew it near these bears 17 times. Now, the bears didn't look so worried about the drones, um, but what the scientists also did was measure the bears' heart rates. Okay. So um, not only getting those behavioural responses, but also those physiological responses that go along with stress. And in almost all of the trials, the bears' heart rate went up significantly when a drone um, went past them. And and bears don't really have much to be scared of regarding drones. And bears don't have much to be scared of. Uh, about anything. A, about anything. <laughs> yeah. They're bears. Yeah. They're apex predators. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this didn't happen, this didn't just happen, you know, with the bears on the ground, but even happened um, to a nearby female bear who was in her den hibernating and just hearing the sound of the drone made her heart rate increase. How did they get a... 
Oh, so they all were fitted with radio collars that could track their um, uh, their heart rates before this oh, okay. happened. So they didn't say, you, um, research assistant number two, can you <laughs> go in there and take a pulse? Walk in that den and put this collar around that sleeping bear. No, they didn't. Okay. Um, in, one, in one case, the bear's heart rate spiked um, an increase of 123 beats per minute. Wow, that's, yeah. that's big. Yeah, big. Anyway, since then, there's been uh, a body of research showing that, yes, recreational drones do impact on the behaviour of wildlife uh, and they do do that more so if the drones are in a flight pattern that target an animal. So, in other words, if they're chasing an animal. Um, when the drones are bigger in size, so, yes, Stu, you're, um, you've got your quadcopter compared to your unicopter your mm -hmm. quadcopter might be more dangerous and when they have a larger engine they are more um, invasive for wildlife um, and apparently birds uh, are most likely to interact with drones which makes sense considering they are literally sharing the same airspace so if you happen to be one of the drone lovers out there um, or you happen to see someone operating a drone, there are rules in Australia for operating it, rules such as um, no flying within 30 metres uh, of people or above people, no flying at night. Um, there are national park laws that prohibit drone flights in certain areas and your drone must always stay within your line of sight. No no, like getting your drone behind mm. a building or a bunch of trees or anything mm. like that. You have to be able to see your drone. You've got to be in the drone zone. you got to be in the drone zone. You can, have, you can head over to the Civil Aviation and Safety Authority website for your full list of no drone no-nos. Drone no-nos? I don't know what a great word for that is. Um, drone nos. Drone nos, yep. And you can download the Can I Fly There app, which um, does exactly what you would imagine that app to do it tells you in a in any sort of space in australia whether you can fly a drone there and what the restrictions are and the uh, legality of shooting them down with bows and arrows um well in the movies it's great i mean people cheer for it in the cinema yeah maybe not so much in real life um but if you see unsafe drone operation you can also report it at um casa.gov.au just saying just putting that out there if you do see that Chris, if you see it, if you, if you see Stu doing getting his drone out in within thirty meters of yep. people, I yep. expect you to be on that website. Great. Certainly will be. Yeah. Anyway, um, now one thing I didn't share with you at the start of this story is the uh, daydreams when I see um, when I see these camera drones when I'm on holiday. Um, I have this <laughs> this daydream that a big wedge tail eagle just swoops out of nowhere and plucks the drone out of the sky and out of our lives. Um, anyway, it turns out that this daydream is actually a legitimate military operation and the French Air Force have trained an elite group of eagles to take down drones from the sky that are in airspace that they shouldn't be in. So the eagles practice on drones from when they're about two weeks old and are rewarded with food when they catch a drone. And it's been so successful that they're doubling the number of eagles in this drone program. I'm just worried about their little feet getting caught in the in the rotors. Yeah, well, I think they might have protection on their feet, on right. their talons. Um, and they also they know... anti-drone gauntlets on their, they... on their talons. Okay. Yeah. And they have... Um, they, they know how to do it. Right. I mean, they've... They've been taking down things from the skies for longer than we have. 
Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let that be a lesson to all the rogue drone operators out there. Either play by the rules or it's only a matter of time until you crash and burn. Viva la Eagle. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, ride-sharing services are like Uber and Lyft in particular. They are they're very popular these days. They're called um, disruptive technologies. Is that the, the term, I think? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, but I mean, I guess that's been overused a lot by, by people. But they did... Particularly Malcolm Turnbull, I they, believe. They did definitely disrupt the taxi industry yeah. um, in... Certainly in Australia, and there's been some issues with taxi drivers being upset and, and taxi companies being upset because they're stealing all their customers, basically. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly um, a lot of debate about whether they're, they're good or bad. Certainly a lot of people find them convenient, but whether they're, they have a good or bad effect on other things is, is certainly, there's a divided opinions. But um, there has been a new study um, that's looking at their effect on traffic, in particular in San Francisco which also happens to be the home base for these companies. Yeah, well, yeah, Silicon Valley's just sort of down the road. Mm. So yeah. it's quite appropriate. Anyway, so um, these companies, they call them transportation network companies in the United States, or TNCs. Um, they, there are ways that they could make traffic better. So they, um, they're supposed to remove private vehicles from the road, so you don't have your own car on the road. You mm. basically borrow someone else's car effectively. Um, and they could make it easier to take public transport by filling in the last mile of travel. Um, and they could encourage carpooling. I believe, you know, that's one of the things that they that they have on the apps is like they encourage people to share their their ride. Yeah, with yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely options on those apps to to share a ride with someone else. Yeah. yeah. So these are ways that they could actually improve traffic, but there are also ways they could make it worse. Um, they could actually add vehicles to the road by having more Uber cars driving around. Um, there's the fact that they are kind of that drive between each customer pickup. Uh, so they're unfilled. There's an extra kind of unfilled car traveling between stops. And um, they can block traffic at pickup and drop-off uh, destinations. Yeah, especially where there's lots of people, which is generally where they spend most of their time. Exactly. So it's important to work out what the expect of these things are because they are popular. They are increasing in number. And also because in the near future, people expect there to be a utopia of driverless cars operating on a similar model. Um Driverless cars, though, uh, my prediction is that the word drive, term driverless car will one day be seen as horseless carriage. Is is kind yeah. of we'll just call them cars. We'll call them yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, so there was a paper published in the journal Science Advances, um, where researchers from the University of Kentucky compared traffic in San Francisco in 2016 with what it was in 2010 before these services took off. And what they did is they used a program called SF Champ. Um, which uh, is often relied on in San Francisco to model traffic in the area. It's at a very kind of micro and, and macro scale. And the idea was to try and model an alternative universe, San Francisco, where Uber and Lyft didn't exist and see what the difference in traffic would be. Okay. 
And now to do this, they also needed some data from the ride-sharing companies themselves. But of course, they couldn't easily get such data. So what they did is instead, over six weeks in late 2016, they um, automatically pinged. They created these kind of automated ghost users who pinged the services every five seconds to see where their drivers were. So you basically ping the thing, see where is the nearest available driver. And so they tracked all the, the available drivers. So they were pretending to be people who wanted rides so the system would... Yeah, that's Tell right. them where the drivers were. <laughs> so they could certainly see how many um, unoccupied uh, vehicles were on the road. Um, they could also see where they were and where they were going between customers, and they could calculate where they picked up and dropped off or seeing where they disappeared and reappeared okay. as, as available drivers. So it's kind of a sneaky way of doing it. But, you know, I'm sure it's all above board, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's typical behaviour in the internet industry. And anyway, what they found was that traffic congestion, which is they measured in particular as delays due to increased traffic, had increased 62% between 2010 and 2016. And in their counterfactual alternative universe scenario, it had increased only 22%. So the bulk of the increase um, between 2010 and 2016, I calculated, was due to Uber and Lyft's existence. Wow. So there's also some population increases and other stuff like that. Yeah, it's a growing city. Yeah, it's a growing yeah. city. But yeah, um, of the 62% increase, most of it was due to these ride-sharing companies. Or so they calculated. Wow. Now, of course, there is limitations to this study. Um, and in fact, in fact, some of the limitations has been picked up on by the ride-sharing companies themselves. They have said that the, the, um, the study didn't take into account online shopping deliveries or the impact of tourism well enough. So they did actually address this in the in the paper because they did their best to estimate it, but they don't have good figures for commercial vehicles to, to really split that out well and yeah. okay, the change in commercial vehicle traffic, which would account for deliveries. And the tourism data, they tried to include that. They had the model they used had an allowance for visitor data, but that's based on hotel bookings and doesn't take into account Airbnb and, and that sort of, of thing. Of course. So yes, um, it is a possibility that Amazon and Airbnb may also be in contributing to the increase. Um, speaking as someone who is outside this whole system, uh, does it matter much to me which disruptive industry is causing the damage? I'm let's, not sure. Let's just say they're all being disruptive. They're all disrupting, yeah. Um, another limitation of the study is uh, whether it is unique to San Francisco. So, you know, can it be generalised to other cities? Is this something that other city planners can use in their in their calculations? So what they found was that the congestion was greatest in the busiest downtown area. So their models were actually good enough to actually look at the street level. And they said, so they said that this... This um, results may not apply as much in smaller cities or where there is a more spread out population. However, um, it does also fit with uh, increases seen in um, analysis of another big city, New York, New York. Mm. So there, um, there was a study a few years ago that found that um, that uh, the ride sharing companies had increased the the miles travelled by about seven percent, or about six hundred million miles. Wow. Um, was they had added to the road. And that was greater than all the yellow cabs in Manhattan combined was the increase due to, due to the ride-sharing companies. Um, now, previously to them coming in as well, public transport had been the highest-growing mode of transport, but that all changed when things like Uber and Lyft came in. So people stopped using public transport or they just used it less... Yeah, and apparently there have been surveys of passengers as well to find that uh, they do, often they would have taken a bus or a subway or something like that instead of jumping in a um, another vehicle. So they're, what they're replacing is often the public transport 
transportation rather than right. taxis or a private vehicle. So now this is obviously a concern when we think not only of things like traffic congestion, but also you know greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, we need people to be using public transport, more mass transit, that kind of stuff. But these services are moving people into cars. Mm. Um, and like when we think of the utopia of driverless cars, where there'll be fleets of robot vehicles roaming around the city, then um, the situation could be even worse. Uh, we don't know what the numbers work out then, but there would still be a lot of cars on the road. So, yeah, and yeah. We, we, there's no way of predicting whether people will actually get rid of their own cars to, to make up for the fact that there's all these robot cars yeah. everywhere. Well, even if, I mean, you could argue that if there's an own car sitting at home, not dr- being driven, it doesn't really matter much to the equation. Mm. The, the issue seems to be that you seem to be having, by having these services, you have, seem to have more cars on the road. So, yeah, electric cars will then be pretty much a must if you're going to go down that path. But if they then still will get the congestion problem. Um, yeah, they'll be clogging the streets regardless. So people might prefer using these services. They might be more convenient than public transport. But overall, in terms of cities and the environment, they may not be good for the big picture. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. As we know, this is the international year of the periodic table. <laughs> and don't you forget it. No one is going no to forget, one's it forget it while you're around, Stu. No, and nor should they. So the man <laughs> credited with the breakthrough of the periodic table, uh, Dmitry Mendeleev, was apparently an avid card player. What? Uh, not, not a gambler. What did he like playing? He liked Bridge. playing solitaire. Because oh, he liked no, cards solitaire. like that. Yeah, solitaire. Because he... That's probably where he got the idea from. Yes, that is. It has been suggested that that's where he got the idea. Oh, wow. He figured out how the periodic table was laid out using a deck of cards that he specially made. And he just kept laying them out in different ways to try and jog his mind into thinking of the the elements in different ways. This is before they had post-it notes. Yeah. Yeah, he he needed a card table with him everywhere. Um. So eventually he struck in the format, most like the one we still used, uh, and he recognised that the known elements didn't represent all the possible elements. Um, so the combination of method, uh, methodical simulations combined with innate human tendency for pattern recognition is what led him to recognise his eventual configuration of the periodic table. Um, and this tendency for pattern recognition is important in science, Though it can cause problems where we see patterns that don't really exist. So lucky we've got statistics to sort that sort of stuff out for us. But it does allow us to pick out hypotheses out of data that we observe because we see things repeating themselves and that sort of thing. So with the advent of cheap computing power in the 21st century, this human ability is combined with the data crunching might of computers to open up problems inconceivable in Mendeleev's time. Uh, But similar to his card game, the use of computer games is actually helping to solve real scientific problems by crowdsourcing the work to anyone with a phone or a computer. So we've probably, we've talked about this on the show before. I'm sure we've mentioned uh, Foldit. 
Have you yes, heard of that's it? a yeah. protein oh, the, one. The protein folding. Yeah, protein folding yeah. game. Basically, game, yeah. it is uh, allows players to design new proteins in a simulator and see if they're stable enough according to the rules of proteomics that they could actually exist. Now, recently, in the last month, uh, a paper was published in Nature showing that some of these proteins from the folded game have been synthesized in the real world and inserted into bacteria, and they work. Wow. So they've actually made bacteria from the from the uh, made proteins from the proteins that people made in the game of Fold It, and they've published this in a paper in Nature. Wow. That's a pretty big leap forward for a computer game. Definitely. Good, yeah. 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 It's like this next level stuff. Yeah. 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 So that it is, it's it's pretty huge. Yeah. Level up. Yeah. Game reference. Oh, yeah. They're, right. they're going to yeah, get yeah, to yeah, the... Yeah. That's, I mean, that's soon. that's the equivalent of your avatar, like stepping out of the TV and or TV of the screen. <laughs> okay, old school gamer <laughs> with your TV console. <laughs> that's how long it's been since I've played games. Um, yeah, and and yeah, going to real life. Yeah, I'm struggling really hard it. to think of a current game reference myself. <laughs> um, so there, there's actually quite a lot of uh, science based games where you can actually contribute to scientific research. So uh, there's uh, Planet Hunter programs, oh. which allow you to pour over data of, which is presented in a graphical way, to look for planets that could potentially mm. support life based on uh, astronomical observations. So you can actually look through this, uh, play these games and, and figure out which planets might actually be close enough to a distant star to have liquid water and all of those sorts of things. So you're like kind of like looking at photos of, of planets or that. Kind no, of... it's kind of um, you've got to match different different features, and when okay. they all match, you sort of get points for it. Oh, basically. okay. Oh. Um, there's also a game called Eterna, but the Eterna is spelt with R N A in capitals. Oh, I see what they've done there. Yeah, so that's a similar way to fold. It allows players to create novel RNA sequences that could potentially code for. Uh, new proteins. RNA being, of course... Ribonucleic acid. Which does... Which copies uh, DNA from the nucleus and takes it out into a cell to make into proteins. Thank you. Yes. So there's also a game called Philo, which is based on players searching for genetic matches in the genomes of related organisms and pathogens, which it turns out we are better at doing than uh, computers. That's be Philo with a PH? Philo, P-H-Y-L-O, yes. Take um, that, computers. Yeah, well, it's something you know, we can do <laughs> possibly due to a couple of million years of evolution rewarding us for pattern recognition, I reckon, might <laughs> yeah. have something yeah. to do with it. Um, and there are games like Citizen Sort that helps classify pictures of different organisms, which helps taxonomists figure out relationships, mm. which would take them months or years to do without people helping them. Oh. So um, the whole basis of, of these kind of games is that we are also naturally geared towards instant gratification for completion of tasks. So much we, better than delayed gratification, I find. Absolutely. It's it's so much quicker. Yeah. Um but effectively that's the basis of gameplay. You get something right, you get a reward, you want to do more and you get more right and you get more rewards. Even though the rewards are just, you know, points on a on a game, basically. But we we react really well to that, which is why we spend lots of time on Facebook and things like that, which gives us rewards in different ways. Um so these kind of games can help solve problems that would take immense computing power to solve, if not countless human work hours. Uh, if you know, if machines aren't very good at solving these kind of problems, and we are, it would still take 
thousands of hours, but we spend thousands of hours playing games anyway. So if we gamify things um, and we can be better at computers uh, in making new connections for these kind of problems, then we can really accelerate um, actual scientific research. So I'm just saying maybe it's time to dump the Candy Crush and download some real science games on your phone. At least then your procrastination will never truly be wasted time. Excellent, Stu. Ten points for you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.